Welcome to season four of Rural Business Uncovered, brought to you by the CLA, where we discuss important matters affecting the rural sector. Aspiring to unlock the potential of the rural economy, the Country Land and Business Association is the membership organisation that provides support and expert advice to landowners and rural business across England and Wales. The energy crisis has its foundations in the move to decarbonise the UK and global economies, which involve UN COP26 net zero targets to help reduce climate temperature. The move away from coal-fired power stations to gas power stations, global sanctions on Russia and Europe's reliance on Russian gas, which has reduced winter gas storage capacity, have all contributed to creating a high global demand of gas. This has led to some of the highest energy prices the UK has ever seen, with forward curve prices showing increases till 2025. Charles Trotman, CLA, Senior Economics and Rural Business Advisor, and Peter McLeod, Director of Sales and Marketing at CLA Energy Services, join us today to talk us through the main factors of the cost of living crisis, their forecasts for the next 12 months, and potential knock-on effects and how this will impact specifically rural businesses. Welcome to you both. It's great to have you with us here today. Hello, Lizzie. Hello, everybody. I'm the uh, CLA Senior Economist. I deal with uh, all rural economic issues um, that reflect the rural economy. Um, I specialise in what it feels like crises because I first dealt with Brexit, then I dealt with COVID, and now I'm dealing with a cost of living crisis. So anything with an economic bent uh, usually passes my desk. Hi, good morning. So my name is Peter McLeod. I am the Director of Sales and Marketing at True, uh, CLA's energy partner in CLA Energy Services. Uh, we are a business-only energy broker and proud to partner with CLA since the summer. Uh, our aim is to help members deal with the complexity of the energy market and probably the timing couldn't be more appropriate than it is right now. Fantastic. We have the right people then to help us unpack this topic today. As we know, the country is in the middle of a cost of living crisis, which unfortunately is getting worse. Charles, as we've just heard, you know, given your considerable experience in this sector and with crises, I think the question that many of the listeners will be asking, what are the real factors causing this cost of living crisis? I think it's important to actually look at the timeline. Um, although the country, as we know, is in a cost of living crisis at the moment, and we forecast that this is likely to last for another 12 to 18 months, it's important to realise that it was over a year ago that we first saw the uh, indications of economic problems, not only for uh, the UK, but also for the EU. And if you extend, extend it wider to, to the actual global economy. If you look at how markets actually act, it's often a case of supply and demand. If there's a high demand for a product, but supply is tight, obviously uh, the price of a product will rise and conversely low demand and high supply will tend to reduce prices. So if we would go back those 12 months to July, August 2021, we saw the end of the pandemic lockdowns throughout Europe, as well as globally. Um, this meant that economies began to reopen essentially at the same time. Now, this wouldn't necessarily have caused the problem, but there was one additional factor, and that was a substantial surge in demand, not just here, but also in the EU. And what this did, it led to volatility, particularly in the energy markets with very high gas prices, which has had a knock-on effect 
in other sectors. For example, you know, as we'll no doubt go through during the podcast, we've had very high fertilizer prices. And in September and October last year, carbon dioxide production severely affected, which had a rebound impact on the hospitality sector, for example. So it can be argued that national economies should have reopened in a far more planned and coherent fashion. But if you look at the way free markets work, that doesn't tend to happen. And what's actually happened together with volatile energy markets, what we've seen is the markets and the economy has tended to overheat. And of course, this will fuel inflation. It'll also lead to a rise in interest rates, which we've seen over the last certainly six months. And, it will, and it's also led to the Bank of England forecasting that the UK is likely to be in recession for at least the next four quarters. So that's up to the end of 2023. So it's not a good picture. Yeah, slightly worrying picture that you've painted there, but I, I'm sure we'll kind of unpack some of the um potential opportunities as well, hopefully moving forward. So Peter, in your experience, what has been the impact of the rises on energy prices that we've seen? Well, it's fair to say, uh, Lizzie, it's been unprecedented. So, and it has multiple effects. So the first is obviously on consumers and ultimately CLA members. Um, We've had a number of conversations with members fearful of losing their business. So fairly catastrophic effect on how they're acting and the impact on them as businesses, employers, um, and people who ultimately need to earn a living. The people are searching, so members are searching for help. So we have a number of conversations ongoing about how organizations can mitigate the impact of the rising price in the market. My advice is speak to us early. So what we are finding is whenever we have conversations with members, often the feedback is we wish we'd called sooner to ask for help. There are a lot of people waiting for the market to change. Um, so one of the behaviours we've seen is people not acting, and you know, my strong advice is please do. The team are there to help. Um, they'll give impartial advice on what can be done and what can't be done. The other effect has been on how supplies are acting. So the volatility in the market, the, the increase isn't always one way. Over the course of the last few months, we've seen prices generally increase, but over the course of days, weeks, sometimes even hours, the market can move quite significantly. We work with over 20 energy suppliers and often in any given day, the activity and the actions of those suppliers can fundamentally shift. So rarely will all 20 suppliers be pricing. Uh, On some days, they will all pull out of the market. Literally no one will price an energy deal. Other days, some energy suppliers will be the cheapest, some the most expensive, and that can flip the following day. So again, what I'd advise is people to engage early. The earlier we engage, the more options your members have and will be ready to act when it's the most appropriate time for them. So a fairly significant impact, not just on the prices, but actually on the behaviour of both consumers and the whole market, including suppliers. And can you tell us what you've been doing to help CLA members? So generally speaking, so the partnership we have ongoing with CLA Energy means we've put in place a, a team of people dedicated to CLA members. So there are people in this office now who do nothing else but speak to CLA members every single day. Their role is to help and support. That is the partnership we signed up to with with CLA. They're impartial, so they'll give the best advice possible. So we've got some physical people there to speak to, should you need to. You can contact them via many means. Uh, The website details all of the ways, whether you want to email, whether you want to speak to them directly, you can get in touch. And we've also been putting out more general advice. So there is a micro site for CLA energy services within the CLA uh, website. 
it helps people understand a bit about what's going on with the energy market. And I'd advise people to have a little read of that as well. It gives a bit more context to what's going on right now. Uh, and over the course of the coming months, when hopefully the market becomes much clearer in terms of the actions people can take, we'll continue to keep that information up to date. So it's the most relevant and most useful information that we have to give at this point in time. And is that also true for members who are you know, looking for support during this energy crisis? You know, How does that look? in this particular time? What's interesting is we've obviously been speaking to more members because every single day we read about it in the press and we see it on the news. We see the pressures placed on businesses. So we've seen a large spike in the number of calls received. So that's brilliant, frankly, that people are reaching out for help. We are having lots of conversations. We are working with the regions within CLA as well. So not just the central body of CLA, but actually out in the regions, understanding what the key issues are on people's minds and trying to feed back on those particular topics. We try and understand everyone's individual needs. So often when we read big press articles, it looks like the market is going to move in one direction and that has the same effect on everybody. That's not necessarily true. For some members who are, who are reaching out nervous about what's happening with the market, actually the effect will pass them by to a degree. Some members have signed contracts two years ago with two years left to run on a fixed energy price in a similar way you would sign a mortgage deal. So actually this, this immediate spike will have little effect on them at all in relation to the direct energy cost. What I would say is I'd still expect those people to kind of reach out because actually when those deals run out, let's make sure that we've got the best procurement in place at the end of that contract. But understanding people's individual needs is, is really important. The other thing we've been doing is helping people understand how to balance action. So for some people who are reaching the end of the contract, signing a new one at really high prices is often very difficult to do. But the risk of not being in a contract and paying out of contract rates can often be catastrophic. So we're trying to explain to people what the effect would be, uh, make sure there's nothing shocking in their bills or surprises. Ultimately, businesses need certainty. So wherever we can, we're trying to help them understand what their ongoing costs would be. I'm sure that goes a long way, you know, especially for those listening, those there's an awareness of the support that is out there for those those that are looking for it and need it, particularly now in this energy crisis. So Charles, you mentioned there about this kind of ongoing for another 18 months. Um, you mentioned obviously some of the, the factors causing this as well, but would you agree that the the ongoing conflict in Ukraine has exacerbated the volatility in energy and fuel prices, such as the wholesale gas price? I think it's certainly the case that the uh, Ukraine conflict has added to the sense of economic uncertainty uh, when it comes to energy prices. But it is important to stress that although the UK doesn't actually import a lot of its gas from Russia, there are going to be uh, indirect impacts as a result of the scale of gas imports from Russia by the EU. Uh, to give you an example of the nervousness of energy markets that we've seen certainly over the last uh, few, few months, when Russia said it would suspend the sale of gas to Germany and other EU countries uh, during the autumn and the winter months, prices rose threefold, that's 300% in less than 24 hours. Now, it's this volatility, which I was uh, speaking about earlier, which is absolutely crucial to, to how the economy will actually um, work, in, work and uh, run in the future. And I think it's also important to realise uh, the important issue of low levels of gas storage in the EU because of the former because of the former reliance on Russian gas imports, it feels as if the EU is actually beholden now to Russia. So the conflict has had a major impact 
through geopolitical events on the economies of not only the EU, but of course, the UK as well. So what we're, what we're seeing is we're seeing two events come together, one after the other, and now they're beginning to uh, combine. So you've got this problem of overheating of an economy. We've now got the, the Russia-Ukraine conflict, and that's led to energy prices rising far, far faster than anybody could have realised. And what I think is as worrying is that there doesn't seem to be any indication as to market stability in the future. Um, so, you know, I've often said um, in speaking to colleagues and in speaking to government officials that the key to this is the actual length of the uh, the present military conflict in the Ukraine. And if it is to be believed that this that this could go on for a number of, of months, then the situation is actually going to get worse, then, then it's going to get better, which is obviously going to just impact more negatively, uh, certainly on the cost of living crisis we're going through at the moment. What are the real factors for this cost of living crisis that we're seeing? What do you think has been the main impact of the rise in energy prices? Um, well, Charles has mentioned the more general kind of market economics of supply and demand. So um, as we came out of a pandemic, as Charles has mentioned, uh, where demand was relatively low, demand has fundamentally increased as lots of uh, global economies come back to life. The demand wasn't predicted, so that's obviously created a shortfall in the amount of energy available. We've then had, obviously, conflict in Ukraine, which probably no one foresaw, and therefore the heavily reliance of Europe on, on the energy coming from Russia has had a huge effect on energy. It's, it's also had an effect on how supplies act. So the nervousness of energy supplies in terms of the ability to supply product, their ability to mitigate risk of under or overuse. So whilst the energy wholesale price is effectively static, the price you will see from different energy supplies will change. And that's because of their own commercial policy. Some suppliers will have energy in supply. So they'll have bought energy a few years ago for this period of time. Others would have assumed they could buy it on the market right now. So you'll see, again, fluctuations in price. What I would say is there's there's lots of comment in the market about how if the Ukraine conflict was to ease, then so would the impact on energy prices. And I'm not necessarily sure that's going to be true. I don't have a crystal ball by any means. However, what I probably can say with confidence is the European countries that were almost entirely reliant upon Russian gas previously won't want to be so in the future. So if Russia said they were going to open a gas pipeline, how trusting would European countries now be that that supply would be sustained for long periods of time? So I think the, the demand and the movement of product around the world was one that will stay with us for a while. So energy markets might calm down and they'll be less volatile. But I think the high prices are probably going to be around for a while. And there are um, lots of industry experts uh, Cornwall Energy being one of them, that predict the, these rises being in place probably through 23, and some are predicting that these prices could stay until 25. Really well, well put there. Obviously, lots to think about as we move forward, especially when it comes to the uh, conflict in Ukraine. There's a lot to consider there, isn't it, in terms of if and how you know the, the geopolitical uh, situation is, is stabilised and how that looks in terms of forecasting and and having that timeline, but but I am going to ask you, you know, what that timeline would look like based on your experience and expertise over, say, the next twelve months. And do you see the situation 
re- really getting worse in terms of um, the UK? And are there any knock-on effects? I know you've kind of mentioned that, but but what would that look like? I think when you, when you talk about forecasting, and it, it is important you look at uh, the central bank, in, in our case, the Bank of England. And if you look at the last forecast, or the latest forecast from the Bank of England, there, there now seems to be a sense of reality, although, of course, it's undoubtedly going to be pessimistic. And this forecast sees inflation peaking at just over 13% by the end of this year. And as I said, the UK entering into a year-long recession. But if you go go back just three months, uh, the bank was forecasting, I would tend to argue, a more or rather too optimistic uh, forecast with inflation peaking at around 9 to 10%, whereas we'd been actually modelling what was happening to the UK economy. And we were actually putting forward a, a scenario that inflation was actually going to be around 12 to 15%. And of course, we know over the last week or so, we've had inflation forecasts going up to uh, as high as 18%. And it is possible that by the end of 2022, we could see inflation as high as that. Although I personally think that's that's doubtful. If it's going to reach a peak, it's likely to be... Uh, probably around 14% by the end of um, 2022, may peak further uh, in the middle months of uh, 2023. Um, But if you look at energy inflation, and according to recent figures from the Office of National Statistics, the consumer price for electricity is now running at between 18.5% and gas at 28 or just over 28%. And these rates we haven't seen since the 1970s and the 1980s. And I certainly remember uh, the major recession we had in the early 80s under the Thatcher uh, government. Um, now, if we look at wholesale, if we look at uh, wholesale gas prices as a measure for future forecasting, we see energy prices as being a key determinant in stoking that inflation rate. And as of yesterday, wholesale gas was trading just over 400 pence per therm. Uh, and we'd forecast that over the next 12 months, this is likely to go up to 600 pence per, th- per therm. But it's important to stress that, again, the volatility in the market that we've seen over the last year is going to continue. And it's this volatility that actually makes it rather difficult to forecast more than uh, three months ahead. But the other important factor we have to remember are interest rates. The country has experienced such low levels of interest rates over the last decade that the recent um, half a percent increase from the Bank of England seems completely irrational. But it's important to realise, and I think it's important, certainly important to stress, that it's the Bank of England view that interest rates have to be the main instrument to control inflation. So when we've done our modelling and when we've done our forecasting for the next 12 months, it's we believe it's very possible that we could see interest rates increase to 5% by the end of 2023, which of course will impact business investment going forward. But it will also lead to a form of uh, stagnation within the economy. And when you have, when you couple that with um, recessionary pressures and further inflationary pressures, then you see the cost of living crisis being extended further 
than an initial uh, 12-month forecasting period. You've listed a number of kind of impacts in terms of the national position of, of this this increase, you know, on gas, electricity and fuel. Does this have the same effect for rural businesses as well, including interests that you spoke on? Well, I think we've got to look at two two main elements to this. So let's look at first at the consumer aspect and we'll t- then turn to the business aspect. So the consumer aspect first, there's obviously going to be heavy pressure on consumers as they see energy prices rise far higher than in the past, which we've explained earlier. Although there's likely to be a form of government support and it's coming through now, there doesn't appear to be any guarantee that this will balance out the negative impacts of the price rise. So in a sense, if we can't get the balance right, it'll actually impact consumers, sense the general public, far more in a far more negative way. But if we then turn to businesses, so remember, um, you know, our CLA members are consumers, they're also businesses. Now, it's the business which is like to see the biggest adverse effects. So what we're seeing is that raw material and import costs, input costs such as fuel and energy are rising far faster than market returns. And uh, you could say a lot of risk lies with there being no energy price cap for business. There is one for residential use, but there isn't one for, for businesses. And if we actually take an example, which has been in the news uh, very recently, if you look at the hospitality sector and Tourism and hospitality in rural areas is very important uh, for CLA members. Businesses have seen price increases of between 200 to 250%, and in some cases, as high as 350%. Now, increases like this are simply unsustainable for a business. What's likely to happen is a number of businesses uh, will go, you know, will go into administration that they're going to go under. So that's why the government actually introducing an energy price cap for businesses is going to be so important. And obviously, we'll have to wait and see what the next prime minister decides to do, what that package will be. Um, but it's important that we actually get the imbalance between costs of these inputs and prices received for the end product. We see that balance or that imbalance straighten out because it's the at imbalance, imbalance rather, which is putting these businesses at serious risk in the future. It's good, I guess, to hear that there is some kind of you know support from the government there. The Country Land and Business Association has been safeguarding the interests of landowners and rural businesses since 1907. Through membership, you gain influence with government policymakers, exclusive and highly valuable knowledge on rural issues, and limited access to tailored advice on all aspects of land ownership from experts, contact with specialist rural services and suppliers, and support from providers who understand your needs on insurance, healthcare, and energy. struggle with CLA would you advise members to look um, at on-site generation absolutely so I think it's probably it's worth noting that it's not it's probably not the answer to most businesses immediate needs if you're now starting the process of looking at alternative on-site generation that's not going to affect your energy price tomorrow but certainly for 
businesses that have got a need for large scale energy and want to diversify how they procure that energy, then yes, absolutely look at on-site generation. There are multiple technologies out there. So the obvious ones like wind and solar, most people would know about, but there are lots of other technologies too. It's worth saying just in the context of uh, on-site generation, often these projects are not quick. Again, if you start engaging now, looking at the feasibility of these projects, you're probably looking at about half a year in order between now in your first conversation and actually deploying the technology, then they're not cheap. And then it's probably worth understanding that actually once you've bought the technology, usually a return on investment of that technology could take anything between one and four to five years. It isn't the answer now, but certainly we're seeing the impact now of people who haven't got a diverse range of energy supply. So over the course of the next few years, if you want to be less dependent on just the national grid, then actually it's absolutely something you should explore. Um, I mentioned earlier, the team are there to talk about energy purchase and energy procurement. They're also here to help with on-site generation. So we've got people who are expert in this field, ready to have conversations and explain to members what the process is they'd have to go through, the costs involved in even understanding the feasibility of a project. We also work with multiple partners within this sector on their specialist technologies. So once we've been through a feasibility study and understand which are the most sensible solutions to explore, then we can also talk members through how to go through that process and ultimately hold their hand through the whole thing from beginning of embryonic conversation through to deployment and how that would affect their overall energy purchasing. It's all fascinating stuff. I mean, listening to you talk, I'm sure there's a, there's enough in there to, to take from that. Charles, you, you spoke earlier about um, energy price caps for businesses, but um, you know, there's been a lot of talk about the rise in fertiliser prices, fertiliser this year, trebling in price, diesel, red diesel, uh, doubling in price. So with the current climate, you know, cost of living, more environmental pressures, is the government really doing enough? Should the government subsidise fertiliser prices, for example? It would be helpful if we take a closer look at the impacts that high fertiliser prices actually has, certainly for our members' businesses. As I've said earlier, the main reason for the substantial increase in the fertiliser price is due to far higher costs of production through higher gas prices. So given that this is clearly the case, the question we then ask is what impacts would this actually have on production and farm margins? And it could be the case that for some sectors, productive capacity is reduced by limiting fertilizer applications. But along with the high fertilizer price, we're also seeing high arable prices, for example, for wheat, rapeseed, barley. And you could say that arable producers actually be able to weather the storms that we obviously see ahead as the markets appear to be working in their favour. But if you're a pig producer or a poultry producer, the rise in arable prices will also lead, obviously, to an increase, and we're seeing a substantial increase in fee costs. In the assessments and the models that we've done, certainly over the last six months, we've made, uh, we've looked at gross margin data, we've actually forecasted what gross margin data will look like in the, in the next two years. Producers in the pig and poultry sectors will be making a loss. For some, a very large loss as market returns will not be able to cover input costs. And if we actually bring everything up to date, we know that the one manufacturer of fertilizers in this country, CF fertilizers, have again suspended production of ammonia, which will have an impact on fertilizer 
production, as well as that of CO2, which not only will have a detrimental impact on the agriculture sector, but also a detrimental impact on the hospitality sector, because the rise in the wholesale gas price is simply unsustainable. So as you can see, everything is linked either directly or indirectly to the rise in energy prices. Now, should the government actually be subsidizing the fertilizer price? We'd say no for two reasons. Firstly, over the last six months, 12 months, there's been no indication or willingness on the part of government to go down this route. So we have to be politically realistic. And the second reason is that the impact will actually be limited. And given the current and future economic situation, which I've already outlined, the actual beneficial or positive impact is likely to be minimal. Now, the government, we believe, should introduce greater transparency in the fertilizer market. But again, we have to work with, uh, with the markets as they are. And it's important that we actually work out a way of mitigating what those potential impacts will be. Um, but directly subsidizing the market price in the fertilizer sector is not going to do the job everybody thinks it might do. Thank you. There seems to be a lot of discussion as well about kind of the changing of land use. And as the carbon prices rise, can you see agricultural food production being land being lost to business for carbon offsetting, you know, things like tree planting, solar array farms, which, you know, is being discussed extensively recently? It's, it's very, yeah, it is. It's uh, you've got the land use framework theory. Now, it's very important that you actually manage to get a balance, which, you know, I keep uh, making the argument for. If we can get the balance right, then we can actually move forward. Um, now, there's been a, a lot of discussion about what are we here to actually produce? What are farmers here to produce? Do you, are they here to produce food? Are they here to carbon offset? Are they here to plant more trees? We have to actually work towards the future. We need government to come up with concrete strategic ideas, proposals, so that you know there is a clear direction to the industry and a clear direction for the rural economy. We know how dynamic the rural economy can be, but we need to get that balance right. Now, carbon offsetting, the environmental goals, the green agenda, all have a major role to play as we move towards the goal of net zero. But we have to be able to feed ourselves. We can't get into a situation where we're so heavily reliant on imports, we actually sub substantially increase what's called a balance of payments deficit, because that indirectly also leads to increases in inflation. And what, what we don't want to do is basically create a system which perpetuates inflation. We actually want to get a lot on, on inflation and we want to drive inflation now. People also need to eat. We all farmers need to produce the goods and the food so that people can eat. But they've also got to be paid a fair price for that production. Now, that means that there needs to be a far more equitable relationship between producers on the one hand and retailers on the other. We've had uh, recent data come through over the last day or so that food price inflation is increasing at the highest rate it has done since the 1980s. Yes, it's very true. It is increasing at that higher rate, but it's actually not increasing at a higher rate than the general inflation rate. Remember that ag inflation is actually now around 25 percent. 
you compare that to the current inflation rate of 10.1%, you can see there's a gap. And it's the farmers which are and it's the farmers and rural businesses which are being negatively impacted by the substantial rise in inflation. So if we are going to move towards the goal of a green economy of net zero, then we have to make sure that government policy is well thought out, creates the right balance, and that everybody involved in making the decisions to get this right actually works in collaboration and cooperation. Because if we start having a, a situation of conflict, the current situation will uh, go on for far longer than it actually needs to. Yeah, really interesting thoughts there. I think collaboration being key in that and, you know, you read about the debates, you know, around using farmland for solar, assuming that the two are incompatible, but renewable energy being a big part of, of everything as we move forward. And it would be really interesting to see if it's a good diversification option for farmers, but um, lots to put in place for that moving forward. I'd also love to know your thoughts on green hydrogen being used as fuel for the future of the farming community. Can you see this replacing diesel entirely or do you think the move will be to electric vehicles? I think there's definitely going to be a, a move to electric uh, vehicles. I think one of the problems there is, is that if that is the case, then you have to have enough electrical charging points or vehicle charging points in rural areas, which we know isn't the case. We have to move with technology. Technology moves at a pace which government can't. The government can never match uh, the pace of technological development. We've seen this over the centuries, the industrial revolution, what we're seeing today uh, with the digital revolution. Digital technology moves at a far rapid pace in government policy making. But um, hydrogen energy is going to be crucial going forward, along with other forms of uh, what we would say is um, novel forms of energy use. I think it's going to be the case that over a period of time, fossil fuels will no longer be used. Electrification for vehicles, for example, is going to be absolutely crucial. And I think the government is right to actually push that policy agenda as hard and as far as it can. And I think we need to also remember that public opinion on this is firmly on the government side. So the government is actually doing what the public wants. Yes, it's ultimately, I guess, the ideal there would be, you know, reduce those agricultural costs and emissions simultaneously, create that circular energy economy, you know, and, and have that in place moving forward. I also wanted to ask you about fracking. Would the CLA ever consider fracking? I think fracking is an, an interesting one. And it's obviously been a debate which has been going on for years. Uh, we know the government essentially imposed a moratorium back in 2019. So no more fracking in the countryside and no more fracking in cities, if it was even viable to do so then. But we've also got to be realistic and balanced in our approach. It's a sensitive subject, both economically and politically. Uh, and as far as we're concerned, the main issue with fracking is over the concept of liability. So, for example, what happens if a fracking operator goes bust halfway through an operation. And it's this issue of liability that still hasn't been addressed by government. We have to look at you know, the potential impacts on the land, particularly pollution, that could result in many years or decades, decades time. Um, this risk must be addressed by government, not ducked. And the government needs to be able to underwrite that risk and liability is absolutely crucial. But also we have to take into account the tide of public opinion. 
there still seems, which still seems to be heavily against fracking. And ask the question, will it actually produce cheap gas or just more gas at current prices? Another effect would be what's the effect on the countryside in terms of the drilling sites and water pipes, gas pipes and additional road traffic during construction. Again, all these are liabilities. Now, it's only right that when that we consider all the options, we need to be realistic. And along with short term measures that the government's introduced or will introduce to deal with the current crisis, we need a properly constructed and thought through energy strategy. If there's no clarity of the government's approach to fracking, as we see, there is no clarity uh, that we can certainly observe at the moment. I'm afraid a clear and effective long term energy policy that builds in resilience in the time of or in the event of volatility and volatile markets appears unfortunately to be a long way off. I think the key there being that long term way of thinking, long term view of land management, which you talked about there. Well, Charles and Peter, it's been really fascinating to have this conversation with you both today. Thank you for helping us on a journey to answer some of the biggest questions around the cost of living crisis with some really interesting ways that could present opportunities as rural businesses and farming move as an industry through these tricky times. On behalf of the CLA, thank you very much. Uh, Lovely to have you on. If you're not a member of the CLA, you can join today. More information can be found on our website, cla.org.uk. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you can join us again soon. You have been listening to the Rural Business Uncovered podcast. You can find all our episodes wherever you get your podcasts or just search Rural Business Uncovered on your chosen podcast provider. Remember to hit subscribe or follow to make sure you don't miss an episode.